0: Hello, welcome to Wimbledon, the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Week one is nearly. Complete and what a week it's been. My name is Gigi seven and I'm speaking to you from the broadcast centre roof of the Championships. All the money broadcast outlets, radio, TV, websites they all housed beneath where i'm sitting it's a fantastic building but the best thing about the building is the roof and the view you get ahead of me if i look straight ahead it's court 18 the famous isna mahu match if i look straight ahead there's just a number of the courts that ground passers get access to to my left is court one where nick kirios is taking on Kay nishikuri it's 20 past eight at night they're deep into the second set nishikuri won the first set and then to my right I can see centre court where Novak Djokovic, a three-time champion, has just defeated and ended British hopes because he's defeated British number one Kyle Edmund and he was seen off by my guest, Peter Mercato.
1: Look, Gigi, we've got to stop meeting like this at Grand Slams. I know. Australia, Paris, and now here. Well, I'm terribly sorry about that. I mean, I didn't. Was that my... Kyle
0: or meeting? No, no, Grand Slams. the meeting is
1: lovely. Is that fine? No, the, the Kyle bit because, you know, Djokovic played, after the first set and a half, he played lights out tennis. I mean, it was a bit of a roller coaster in terms of his emotions being up and down and all over the place, but. He just maintained the level. He serves so well, out of sight. He serves so well. His return game, we know how he can return, but he was just rock solid on serve. And gradually, the resistance from Kyle Edmund sort of uh, reduced, which you would expect for a player who's making great strides in his career, but hasn't necessarily played right at the very, very top on this sort of stage before. But gosh, Kyle, I'll make a. Can I make a prediction while we're just committing things? Uh, he go close to the top ten by the end of the year, early next year. I mean, he's 17. My, my I mean, I'm not really sticking my neck out, I don't mm-hmm. feel, but just on what <laughs> I've seen and the way, you know, the guy and the big forehand, he's tightened up the backhand, all that sort of stuff, but it's been more about his temperament that he feels he belongs at this level and he's getting the matches week in, week out. He'll go through the, the, the ATP Masters Series events. He'll be competitive there, you would think, US Open. And he's there because he's playing these guys, these top guys, week in, week out. And I think that's, for a lot of these players coming through, it's the missing piece of the puzzle because you can come through and you can play at 250 or 500 level and not necessarily quite get to the top names, the top five, top ten. But if you're doing it at Masters 1000 level, that's the test. And I think his career trajectory just continues to go up and up. So don't worry too much about the result, Gigi. I know you're disappointed, but... There's so much upside and this is all just part of the journey really.
0: Well it's it's been a mixed day hasn't it for British fans there was the England result and in terms of how the timings worked out that there wasn't much of a crossover. Were well, you shaking your head.
1: I've got to say. I mean, you know. It's like they'd won the tournament again even though it was a bit more straightforward here too. Semi-finals
0: 2-0. for England in in a major championship, major tournament.
1: Yep. I'll tell you the actually the interesting thing was Gigi, before I get myself into so much trouble. Was and it's the
0: shortest ever podcast because <laughs> we're a guest out. <laughs>
1: that it was actually, the, the interesting thing is going to be the effect that it actually has on the championships. And it had an effect today. It was quite eerie around here because the focus wasn't so much on the tennis. I mean, it was when you were in the centre court, number one court, all that sort of thing. But outside, it was focused on the football. And certainly the media and everyone else and that sort of thing, it was focused on the football, so it just had this really eerie, sort of quiet thing, and occasionally, of course, the roar for the couple of goals. But it's quite a different feel. It's going to be different on Wednesday. I think that we're at quarter final stage for the men. So whether that's going to have an effect, because England actually play at night, so it's not going to have too much of a knock on effect. But of course, if they make the final, oh boy. Well, Wimbledon look out.
0: have said, haven't they? We're not changing things, we're not putting no. the football on. And in, I went into working here across. Radio and TV for the BBC. I went into the radio room, and, and the biggest screen in the room was on the football, and yes. there was tennis sort of scattered all around it. And <laughs> as I was talking to people, I thought, I'm not sure anyone's listening. I mean, I love football as much as the rest of everyone, but I'm not sure anyone was really listening as I spoke. It was taken up by the football. I went into a commentary box a little bit later, and I was keeping an eye on Fabio Fanini, who yes. lost to Yuri Vessi. He was looking for his first Wimbledon round of 16, and at one point, he had his right thigh knuckles. <laughs> finger everything taped it was it was on wrist how much tape can i put on in a medical timeout and the screen to my right was on the football. There was an eye on that. There was the tennis going on. And then there was a change again when the football finished and there was just this feeling, not everyone here, of course, is a football fan or an England fan, but there was just this feeling of now we'll turn our attention to Kyle and see how he does. Maybe for the All-England Championships, the good thing is they won't have to worry about further clashes with Kyle Edmund and the England football team.
1: Yeah, true, true. And, And, you know, from their perspective, fair enough. I mean that they have their tournament. World Cup is the World Cup, and well, that you know sometimes they're going to have clashes and they're going to meet and that sort of thing. But you know we'll see what happens. It's an anomaly because it's once every four years, so you know we'll see how that one plays out. But that's been sort of a minor storyline out of so many storylines so far this week. Goodness me,
0: it's crazy. Let's start with let's start with let's start with today. Let's just begin with today, and maybe work back in. I want to talk about Sasha Zverev. Yep. Ernest Gulbis. Enes Corbus, I know he has a by his name. He came through qualifying. He's a lot better than that. He has been a lot better than that. semi of the French Open, an incredibly talented individual whose head wasn't always playing ball and he'd say some outrageous things at press conference. He's like, you know, I I have the money and I don't need to play this. I don't want to do this. But recently said, I've got married, become a dad. I've settled down. He worked his way through qualifying. He's got Gunter Bresnik, Dominic's team's coach. He's been a long-term mentor of his in his camp. And Sasha Zverev... Who do you want to start with, Gulbis or Zverev? There's a story on both sides. Well, I'll
1: start with Gulbis first because that's where we've gone. I think the key word you put in there, Gigi, was work. And he said it afterwards. They asked the question, you know, how did you get to to this stage? I work for it. He said, I've only got about three, I reckon I've got three or four more good years here. I want to make the most of them. He will do that if he applies himself because that's been the big question mark over Ernest Gulbis, over his career. He's got the talent. He's got the shots, he's got the ability, he just needs the application. And if he can really knuckle down, then there's no reason why he can't rise back up the rankings again and again be a force. But it's on him to be able to do that. And clearly, uh, what he's done across this week has shown he can come through three matches of qualifying, he can perform really well. He knocked out Demir Jumeur, uh, the 27th seed, uh, on the way through here. And then against a tiring Sasha Zverev, he takes on the winner of the the Nishikori match, so you can insert result here at ATP. Well, do it com. Uh, but you know, he he's a chance in that one, and and because he's in that mindset, when he's in the mindset and he's on, he can be really hard to beat. You mentioned a
0: tiring Sashka's well, and this is a little bit of the head scratcher with Zverev. We know he's mastered the three-set format. He's got multiple Masters titles. But something we saw... He lost the fifth set, Six Love. Now, this is something that happened in the Australian Open against Young Chung. I think he only picked up one point in that set. And I think that's what makes people think what's going on here. Would, could he really have been that tired? Was it mentally he switched off and, and therefore the set was gone? Because surely physically he shouldn't have been that worn down.
1: No, he had a straight sets win first up, but it was the five-setter against Taylor Fritz which was sped over two days. They stopped for bad light and had that had kept going, Fritz probably would have won that. But then he went bang, bang uh, and easily won the next two sets the next day. But then he played the third day. Look, I, I think it's probably more, as I was on the sort of Kyle Edmund match, as I had one eye on the other one, was I think it's the volume of matches. If you want to put your finger on it. I mean, a couple of weeks ago in Paris, he played those long five-setters. One, two, three in a row that to try and drag himself off the canvas. And uh, and yeah, okay, he didn't play too many matches on grass in the lead-up. I think he lost in the first round of Haller. That was the one I think he played. But You know, sometimes that can just catch up with you. I think, yeah, okay. The question mark? Can he withstand five sets? I thought he answered that question in Paris. But Um, I
0: think mentally, the six love scoreline it brings you back to Australia again. And and was it purely physically? He had nothing left, or was there a mental switch that went and and added to any tiredness that he was feeling?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's that because you know when you have to be up for so long and you're expected to be the favourite and that sort of thing and he's played a hell of a lot of matches, let's be fair Sasha Zverev already in 2018 and I think they're going to have a really good look at his schedule now and I think hopefully he gets a lighter load in the second half of the season because now the expectation is when he plays, he's going to go deep like quarters or better. So they're going to play a lot of matches. So they've got to be really smart about how they do that. The best thing I would say, if I, you know, not that Sasha's going to ask me for advice. but you if You might be
0: listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Sasha,
1: if you do, take a break. Go on holiday. Go home, even. Spend some time with the family. Just chill out for a bit. Don't pick up a racket for a little while. Mentally, just reset yourself. I mean, obviously, you can't watch Germany in the, the World Cup, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, just... just Go and walk in the forest. Do whatever it does. Do whatever you do to relax yourself and put the racket down for a while. And then, you know, after a week or so, obviously keep training, um, pick up the racket and and slowly work your way back into the hard court season because it is such a long season and the players need that time to switch off. And I think Zverev is probably at that stage right now. Just something hit the reset button, and then launch again for the second half of the year.
0: So, Endis is through to week two the round of 16. He will face, at the moment, it's looking like, 8.33 in the evening, K Nishikuri, who is two sets up on Nick Kyrgios. Just took the second set, the Japanese play the 24th seed on a tie break. But, Peter, and I know you're working on the Edmund the Djokovic match. The first set, 6-1 against Nishikuri, what was it, about 16 minutes?
1: Yep. Wow. Gosh, Nick can do that, can't he?
0: <laughs> I mean, he plays quick. It's not,
1: it's not a skill. It's not a party trick. It's just something that happens. And uh, Nishikori has gotten a hold of him too a couple of times, I think, in the head-to-head. So he's two sets up. The, the question mark, of course, is will they finish? So if Nick... Well, well, if we keep going at this speed, Oh, no, no. If Nick K okay, wraps it up, then, you know, he's fine. Not a problem he's going to wrap it up, but... If it goes to four, maybe five. Hmm. We'll see how that goes. Kyrgios has the ability to switch it around. It's whether he wants to, I suppose.
0: There has been a debate that started this week and the question was raised by former Wimbledon champion Marion Bartley, and it was put to her about Nick Kyrgios, about winning a Grand Slam, and she was very adamant. She said, no, I don't think he will. And for her, it's not the ability, it's it's what's up here, it's what's in the head. I personally believe that he will win one I don't think he'll win multiple but I think he will win it got a very good chance of winning here where do you stand on what you think he can achieve
1: I think it will be time in the mental side like I yeah that's the thing you got to get the mental side right I think she also had a um, some words for Gal Monfies as well who's through to the fourth round here too about you know achieving that potential and you know Nick if the mindset is right then yeah the He will win slams, but it's just, you know, situations like this, and and obviously when we're recording this, we're still in the match, so anything could potentially happen. But, you know, to have those 6-1 sets where you don't necessarily turn up and then be closer in the second set, but still lose that as well. And then, you know, as we've seen in the past, he drops his bundle and, you know, the world's against him and he gets angry with his team and all that sort of stuff. He checks out of it. I think there will be a stage... And, and he's acknowledged it and he's talked about it. He said he missed tennis while he was off injured. He didn't have control of the situation and he wanted to. He couldn't play. Where it will switch on and, and he's not going to play forever, he said that. But he knows in the limited time he's got to make the most of it and make the most of that ability. I, I don't agree with necessarily what Marion says because I think he can win a slam. It just might be a couple of years down the track when it all finally clicks.
0: Karen Hashinoff came through against Francis Tiafoe. He'll line up against you Novak know, Djokovic in the round of 16. Juan Martin Del Potro, beat I think we should put it, a one-legged Benoit Paire. I mean, he, one of his legs has been so heavily strapped, a knee problem, but the strapping was from the upper thigh down to midway down his calf.
1: It was almost mattress sort of size, wasn't it? I don't the, know how he bent his leg, there? I don't
0: know how he walked. Yeah. I mean, that was... It must have taken him a good few games to even get the blood flowing and get
1: moving. I
0: know, I know. That was was incredible striving. So Del Potro comes through to face Gilles Simon.
1: Sorry, just quickly on on Benoit Paire. I mean, his eyes lit up because when the draw first came out, he was due to play. Andy Murray, he pulls out. He gets a a slightly easier path through. A good win over Shapovalov, though. I mean, got to give him credit there, Benoit Paire. He can run hot and cold, but he got the job done. And, yeah, Del Potro too strong. And, against Gilles Simon, you suspect that Juan Martin will get through that one. Uh, and then Yiri Vesely, I guess, has been the, the surprise in that bottom half of the draw, taking on Rafael Nadal.
0: So if we stay in the bottom half for now and we bring up Rafael Nadal, who came through against Alex Diminar. Diminar is such a talented individual. He burst onto the scene at the Australian Summer at the start of the year. So much potential. You can see he's modelled himself on his mentor and his idol, Leighton Hewitt, <laughs> but just did not have enough for Rafael Nadal. Who does have enough? Are, we, are you looking straight to Djokovic in this bottom half? Who puts Nadal to the test in the bottom half and stops Nadal getting to the final.
1: Delpo different situation to what we saw in Paris, different surface obviously much quicker, that's going to suit Del Potro and he would have got a bit out of that I mean we saw the emotion in Paris from Del Potro and um, you know the fact that he this is not my favourite service yet I still perform so well I think that's going to be an interesting quarter final Del Potro and Nadal should that come to pass and then you know I was impressed with Djokovic today I know people say you know is he fully back I think on what we saw yeah he is he's still going to have those pressure points he's still going to have moments where his level drops and he gets angry and he loses sets along the way Hachinov's playing some really great tennis at the moment but I think when you talk about second week you've got to go with the experience and certainly that's the case for Djokovic. Gulbis could prove to be a surprise packet there depending on who he plays whether it's Anishikori or Kyrgios if it's Kyrgios oh boy that's going to be an interesting one but um, yeah look Nadal, Del Potro, Djokovic are the standouts for me in the bottom half of the draw.
0: Top half of the draw, working bottom to top of that top half, Stefanos Tsitsipas against John Isner, Milos Raonic against Mackenzie McDonald, Kevin Anson against Gilmore Feast and Adrian Manorino against Roger Federer. Mackenzie McDonald, Mackie. a name that some people will be thinking, who on earth is that? And what's he doing in week two of Wimbledon?
1: Well, let's go back to January, shall we, Gigi? And we'll go back to the Australian Open, night match. He takes on Grigor Dimitrov. And we're thinking, who's this guy? What's he done? Hadn't done a hell of a lot. He's come through the college system. He was coached by Wayne Ferreira for a long period of time. And who you're working with here? Yes, on the Wimbledon Radio Channel. And starts to build up some momentum. He's made some good strikes, performing very well on the grass. He beats Nicholas Jarry in the second round, 11-9. Backs that up by beating the guy who beat Maran Cilic, Guido Pella, 7-6 in the third set and now he comes in and all of a sudden he's in the fourth round he's taking on Milos Ranic what a meteoric rise but the kid's got talent it's a tick for for college system uh, i think we're seeing a lot more of this now i mean isn't it probably another example of that too we're coming through the college system and they they've got that backing they've got that preparation they've got the talent but they just take their time before they go out onto the main tour and and the results are starting to show he's got he's got a great game and he goes after it I mean these next gen players McDonald you got I mean McDonald's a little bit older but Tsitsipas is is there at the moment and you know you think okay there's some exciting times ahead from the tennis that we're seeing can he beat Milos Raonic? yeah of course he can you'll need to return very well because Milos is finding some very nice form if you don't mind but you know, there's no reason why I can't. Throw caution to the wind and have a go at it. And then a potential quarterfinal with Isna or Tsitsipas. And everyone's been impressed with Tsitsipas. People come up to me and they go, oh, well, normally it's like, oh, Stefanos Tsitsipas. So no, see, I've feeling. had this
0: week. How, how do you say his name? Is it a T? Tsitsipas. <laughs> just, just so now, now when they come up to you, they say, and when they start trying to say a name, I said, do you mean... S- Stefano sits, Tsitsipas and they said yes i just lose the T to say Sits because for some people because Wimbledon you do find this at Grand Slams it's a fantastic event it's such a big beast yes. that people work here that maybe don't work in tennis for the yes. rest of the year they love their tennis but they don't get the opportunity and there are some people they don't know and they haven't seen maybe Mackenzie McDonald is one of them and Stefano Tsitsipas, we've got to know a lot through ATP Tennis yes, Radio he's been absolutely. working his way through we did the final of Barcelona 500 he took on Rafa Nadal he's done a few interviews we have got to to know him, but for some people, they're seeing players like Sitsipas and Mackenzie McDonald, even Ernest Gulbis. People are coming up to me saying, Oh, this qualifies doing okay. I'm saying he got to the semi final of, of the French Open. That's the wonderful thing, though, about a Grand Slam that you get stories and situations like this.
1: Absolutely, I mean, he's 31st seed now, and he's uh. He's been making slow but steady progress. And you think back... Uh, I'm thinking back to the next-gen finals in Milan, and I remember Sasha Zverev coming down. I'm trying to place whether it was Sitsipas he played that exhibition match with. It's testing the memory, but I think it was Sitsipas. It was
0: Tsitsipas, Zverev, and next-gen, and they did an exhibition set.
1: Yes, that's right. So he was just sort of on the cusp. He did, didn't play there, but he was there anyway, and Zverev came down and played an exhibition match. And, I mean, since then... He's just made excellent strides. He's worked hard. I mean, that's the thing. All these players work so hard and they know the level that they need to get to. It's within touching distance for them and the results are starting to show. Um, has a good win in the opening round, pulled it out of the fire, gets it done in four sets, and then against Jared Donaldson, gets it done. He can go the distance. Fabiano, slightly easier. John Isner, you know the task that's ahead of you. You know probably tie breaks if you're serving well. And if you can just, it's just a matter of one or two points from there, but Isner is beatable even on this surface, and he's got to be liking his chances.
0: Now, I said this a lot in Paris, so we're just going to change the name. Can anyone beat... Federer at Wimbledon. Okay, we'll change the tournament as well. But it was the same sentence I felt I was saying in Paris. Can anyone meet Nadal on the clay in Paris? Can anyone beat, from who we have left, beat Federer on the grass here at Wimbledon? Because so far he has looked sublime. He's doing his usual of gliding through matches.
1: Yeah, no real tests along the way either. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be a problem or not. Certainly not at this stage. Adrian Manarino first up for him. Even though Manorino plays so well on grass, you'd think that Roger would get through without too many problems. And then Monfils or Anderson. Anderson, big-time player now in terms of second week of a slam. Maybe push Federer. Maybe a few tie breaks along the way. Can't really see it happening. And then McDonald's, Ranic, Isna, pass Probably Ranic or Isna. But I think, you know, there's just that moment where he can get sneak a break of serve and then it all changes. That's the thing. Like Rafa on Court Philippe Chatrier, Roger on centre. You're playing the reputation as well. I can't see it from the top half of the draw. I can see him being pushed, maybe dropping a set along the way. But it's I reckon it's either Djokovic, Del Potro on the Dal. I reckon it's those folks in the second, the bottom half of the draw to be able to get over the line.
0: And if it turns out to be Roger Federer against Rafa Nadal, a lot of people have been talking because it's the 10 year anniversary of the 2008 final. Federer had been sweeping up Wimbledon titles. It was a third consecutive final here between these two and then this fantastic match unfolded there was a rain delay to start things off there was a rain delay during the match it was nearly five hours of tennis and it was nadal that would ultimately cross the finish i I was here that day i wasn't commentating but i managed to sneak in to center court someone said do you want my ticket and i didn't have to work so in i went it was it was incredible
1: it was i mean watching it at home uh in australia and late into the night, and then it became later into the night, then it became later even still into the night, then it became the morning, and you're like, to watch it again, like, to just see that and to think that from what we saw back then, 10 years later, we're still seeing it. It's unbelievable. At the high level, we're still seeing it, Gigi. This is the extraordinary thing about these two players. They're still winning majors. They're still playing at an enormously high level. They're still one and two. I mean, what an era this is with these two players, the likes of which we may not see again in terms of the aura, in terms of the rivalry, in terms of the domination right at the top of the men's game. Such a privilege to be a part of it. I mean, if you want to get nostalgia, we want to talk about this, about what we might like from the heart perspective. Another Roger Raffa final here. That would challenge a World Cup final it would any day. Be
0: unbelievable. Lots still to come on the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Peter McCarter alongside myself, usually someone on the broadcast roof here at the Championships. There there's not that many people around because it's middle Saturday and there isn't any play on Sunday, so a lot of people use it as the opportunity to get home to to family if they've been staying down all week. There's a little bit of tennis still going on. Kenishkuri and Nick Kyrios are early stages of the third set, Nishikuri leading by two sets to love. If we do our quick highlights of week one i can throw out aside from the tennis oh okay you can add a little bit of tennis in right but i also need to throw in the heat yes flying ants yes and chair umpires getting down onto the court and doing some demonstrations
1: (laughs) oh james gothavon Yeah, they say you know if you're a player and you don't really feel you can make it just jump in the umpire's chair Nice little serving demonstration with Nick Kyrgios the other day. It, him
0: the foot fault and what he should and shouldn't do.
1: The heat. I mean, beautiful spring weather here in London. It certainly has been uh, from... Spring. A stri-
0: it's just too hot. <laughs> Okay. Did you get attacked by the flying? I missed the flying ants. I was no. in a commentary box and everyone was talking about flying ants and I thought we'd been invaded and I left
1: the commentary box and I was like No, it was only on certain courts where it happened and I was in the commentary box so I didn't see it either. So, um, yeah we've had that. We've had the heat. We've had the stars coming in. They've been in the, the royal box. It's been such a whirlwind the first week of a slam. There's so many things going on. There's so many things that you, you miss along the way as well. You throw the football in as another sort of sideliner as well and the players have being asked about it and all that sort of thing and the good part about Wimbledon is as we're recording on a Saturday the middle Saturday the Sunday we can take a because the breath. weather
0: has been good so there is no need to bring Sunday into action that's the day to get your washing done to reacquaint yourself with family if they live close by saying yes I'm your daughter or wife or sister or mother and do a bit of shopping just be sort of normal for for a handful, have you got any plans for Sunday? I
1: do, we have, there's an annual media tournament uh, which is played in the morning, Wimbledon Park, not too far from here, which I play in every year, so a good chance to get the racket out and have a hit. And then uh, I think I'm going to, in the afternoon, uh, go out and a visit of the Lord's Cricket Ground to get a tour there, because I haven't been out there and done that, I like to try and do something that I haven't done in London before, and that's one of the things that was on the list, and maybe try and do a bit of shopping, get into, into town as well and then wander back sort of to the Wimbledon area where I'm staying and nice uh, early dinner and then back to the accommodations and just a chance just to chill out and reset and refocus we've got Sacred Sunday which goes into Manic Monday, it's the best day of tennis for the year for mine because we've got all around the 16 matches on the same day and doesn't matter where you look, you've got quality everywhere.
0: And I'm going to get a final few predictions on those. But just to remind you, you're listening to ATP, Tennis, the ATP Tennis Radio podcast but we are starting to release exclusive interviews on our ATP Tennis Radio Twitter account it's throughout the tournament, we've archived them, they're really relevant to what's going on so please follow our Twitter account on Radio. now one man very well versed on the grass courts of Wimbledon where we are today is doubles legend Mark Woodford Mark spoke to Jill Krabis about the time he teamed up with Novak Djokovic to help the Serb on grass
2: the game was really a monopoly between, uh, or a duopoly between Federer and Nadal, and they were uh, holding on to that those two positions, or trying to vie for that one position, uh, setting up the top of the tree, and um, they had a firm grasp on it. And Djokovic was the one that obviously was trying to break the code, like a lot of other players out there. They were trying to find that that key. How do we? Break this uh, union between Roger and Rafa. Um, And the time that he had approached me was look, it was really to work on a part of his game that he felt was not up to standard. That if he was going to be a likely successor or play a villain's role in breaking the hold that Rafa and Roger had on the men's game that he had to be able to utilise all of his game. I mean, you know, he was very, very solid, solid all-round game, but uh, he was looking to try and improve, really, his attacking game, uh, transitioning from the baseline to the net, and he was well aware that there were going to be moments in matches um, that he had experienced where he'd lost, and if he was going to, you know, crack the code and uh, pick up victories... um, over those the other two guys, he had to be able to be comfortable playing from the net, and um, so I, I was thrilled when you know he approached me, and probably a little, a little hesitant, I must say. I uh, it, was, it was it was a surprise, um, and and I certainly agreed and jumped on board and i knew it was just really a a consultant type of role it was not to become the sole coach he still had Marion vider at the time uh leading the way and and i was working in you know alongside of marian who i'd played against on tour so um you, you know it was it was fantastic but you know when you're trying to climb that tree i mean it's such a an arduous task um As you probably well remember trying to also, you know, you're trying to be the best player, best person, uh, player possible. Um, You know, a lot is happening and he was trying to tend to a lot of other parts of his game. And, you know, my role was to, you know, say, okay, then, you know, it's not just hitting volleys. It's about movement as well along the baseline and and. You know, recognising that when, that when there is something offering to take charge and to move forward. And, you know, that's where a lot of players, I think, when they, they choose to... Or they feel like, oh, I've got to improve my attacking game and, and volleys. I've got to hit better volleys. They tend to over just staying up at net. And, you know, you've got to... Um, you've really got to learn to crawl and to walk before you run. And uh, it's the same with volleying. I mean, you've got to spend time, you know, uh, understanding the the movement from the baseline towards the service line where you're generally going to get your first volley, right? And then you can maybe move in two or three steps. And so it was through a period where he was getting closer and closer to Roger and Rafa and eventually was able to, you know, obviously pick up some wins. I would have loved to have been there a, um, a, a little longer. Um, it, it went for about eight weeks. And, um, you know, look, his, his dad was still... Uh, played a significant part in uh, Nole's career at that stage. He was still very young. Um, and you know what? When you bring something new into your game, you've got to be prepared to fail at it numerous times. And, and I look back sometimes thinking, well, maybe... Maybe I wasn't, you know, strong enough into just reiterating that you—it's—it's tr- it's, um, trial and error. You, You've—it's um, not going to work perfectly every time, and it's, you, you know, attacking. It's not to succeed a hundred percent of the time. It's to build that pressure. Um, but it w- look, it was a fun eight weeks, and I was amazed at the guy that he wanted to soak up so much information, and ultimately, that's one of the main reasons why he reached. Number one, and he has held on to that that spot for a long time. Obviously, he's had some issues recently, but uh, I'm not surprised that he stayed at the top of the game as long as he did.
3: And so, when you talk about that, you wish you would have sort of um, focused more on not being too afraid to fail. You're talking about with with Novak, like getting that point across.
2: Well, yeah, I've, I you know think back that I wish I could have maybe uh, been a little a little firmer in just keep going with it. Don't you know? Uh, I think that he was, I, as I said, he had gone through many matches where he felt he could pinpoint that I that if he didn't go to net, he missed his opportunity or he missed a volley. And I know full well from my own experience that when when you do make a, a mistake up at net, it's very very easy to withdraw from attacking um, further. Um, you feel a lot more comfortable staying on the baseline, so I think that's where I wish I maybe um, not had uh, allowed him to, you know, oh, it's, you know. I feel safer on the baseline, um, you know. You just just maybe a little a little firmer in. Keep going up there. You'll be fine, you, you know. And yes, you you are gonna make mistakes up there, but it will be okay in the long run. Probably trying to think to remind him of the big picture rather than just that six to eight week period that I was working uh, on that area with him.
3: Well, I love that because, I mean, you hear all the time about what players learn from coaches Mm. and obviously it's a huge learning experience for you too, what you've learned as a coach. And has that helped you um, since then really help other players on the tour, um, you know, be a little bit more firmer, I guess you could say, or more aggressive in the way that you coach now?
2: Yeah, it... it, um, I think coaching is a juggling act anyway. I mean, you have to consider the personality, um, their culture, uh, the way that they play. And, you know, obviously, you, you know, it's, it's not like you're going to um, uh, turn a baseliner into a, a, an attacking player. And that was never really the goal to, to um, have Novak play that way. It was only at, you know, the, when the opportunity arose in matches him to recognise that this was maybe a chance to put a bit of pressure on and there's so many players, I mean I still feel to this, uh, to this day a lot of male players are playing the same way, they're on the baseline uh, whether they're 6 to 8 feet behind the baseline or even on top of the baseline but they're just trying to hit for the heavens, um, hitting winners, um, there just doesn't seem to be um, an in-between there and uh, I, so I certainly feel you know for, for Novak obviously he can stay on the baseline and and absorb a lot of the pace from other players and he has adopted um yeah, you know at, at times where he has been a lot more aggressive and and it just didn't come from me I think I played you know maybe a, a small part in that I mean he's worked with several other coaches that you know no doubt uh, have uh, impressed upon him that you know you When those opportunities arise, though, to move forward, you can't be afraid of it. You have to be able to. And I again believe that the very best players today, when they're winning these major tournaments, they're willing to risk a little more. Um, They're ready to roll the dice and play aggressively. They don't just stay on the baseline and wait for the other person to make mistakes.
3: So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk now about you know how the how the men's game has grown and how it just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And where you're, I almost feel like we're at a point now you wonder just how it can get better because it is so good. Do you feel like the transition game is the next step or will be the next step for the next generation that will push the game forward?
2: I'd like to think so. I, um, you know, the surfaces that they play on, the conditions, the environment, I think play a, a huge part in uh, the development of players. Um, and I certainly came up in an in a era that... There was a bit more variety with the speed of courts, and I think almost with with tennis has become so vanilla that it's one style, one one way of playing. And I, so yes, maybe with um, as as the tour, you know, obviously, you know, keep looking at the ways to make it more fan friendly um, and player friendly as well. That they might, you know, uh, adopt different speeds um, of surfaces, and you know, grass. I mean, boy, I, I hesitate um, to be, you know, Rafa is a phenomenal champion. Um, but I don't know whether he'd win Wimbledon on grass if he had played on real grass. The, um, the surface that they play on today is very much like a, a hard court. The ball just sits up nicely. Um, and I know that there was, um, you, you know, they were looking at that points were very short back yeah, generations ago, and now they wanted to make it a bit more um, uh, play. There was more volume of play, and but that's allowed right for someone like a Rafa to to win a Wimbledon championship. Not taking anything away from the guy. I, mean, I love Rafa to death, <laughs> but um, I, I think if they, uh, with different court speeds, would develop different styles, and I think that would actually be more exciting. But the future, yes, I think you'll see. You know these athletic players, male and female, that are able to play on the baseline uh, for long periods of time as well as actually, you know, have a big serve and get to net uh, and play some volleys.
3: It's interesting you brought up Rafa too at Wimbledon and I I love Rafa too, but I think there was an interesting... We're not Rafa knockers. No, we no. love Rafa, but there was um, an interesting stat. I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like the year he won compared to three years before the ball had bounced like nine inches higher or something. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but... I mean, that just goes to, goes to your point, like there the ball is bouncing a little bit higher, it's not staying as low, and it suited, the, that condition in that year suited him quite well. And,
2: and I think even there's a, um, a stat uh, again at Wimbledon that maybe from the first time that Roger Federer had won Wimbledon, uh, the amount of times that he served and volleyed or even got to net compared to the other years that he has won um, the the event as well, and it's just regressed as far as serve volleys and and venturing to net which i think is you know some could say well you know he still won the event um yes and you can only beat who's up the other end you play the tactics that are necessary um but i find it also interesting that maybe some players other players his opponents aren't willing to actually take on a different game in order to force him uh into making quick choices um that if he's staying back well then I'll move forward. Um, I think sometimes tennis is, is like a chess game. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not trying to, um, I think there are too many players, most like a sheep, they just follow what the leader does and the leaders of the game at the moment. And that's why they're still dominant.
3: Are there other youngsters or juniors coming up transitioning to the pros that you feel like have a game style that can suit all these surfaces or that can, you know, push these guys to the next level or be the next four or five, I guess you could say?
2: Well, probably if I, if I started my, within my own
3: of course, uh, country, Australia. you know,
2: Australia. <laughs> so, uh, you know, at the moment we've got Nick Kyrgios and, and I know that Nick is not 17 years of age, but he's still young. Uh, youth on his side, Nick uh, Kyrios and Tanasi Kokonakis, I think are uh, you know two from Australia. That um, uh, you know Kokonakis has experienced some injuries along the way, so that's held him back. Uh, but I, I think they have fantastic games. Uh, Nick, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of uh, attention placed from that derives from Australia um, as well as around the world. They they see him as you know potential. Top 10 player, uh, possible Grand Slam winner. Um, a lot's going to depend on how physically he, his body holds up. Um, but I, I think exciting prospects there. And, and, you know, again in Australia we still have another three, three other guys that are actually coming up and uh, what Tennis Australia will, will focus on in the next few seasons. One is Alex de Mina, who um, so he's got a brilliant future. And, heck, his, his mentor, teacher... I mean, there's, it's not too shabby, is it? have Leighton Hewitt, um, you, you know, guiding you. Uh, so, look, he, he's going to do fantastically well um, this year. Um, but the, the other two guys are a 17-year-old who won the French Open last year. The juniors, Alex Popperin, he is uh, basing himself in Europe and uh, he's building his game. Um, uh, and physically, he's starting to grow. He's, he's got a lot of height, a very different build to Alex de Minna. And then we've got, it. there's another young guy who unfortunately is has been out for the last three or four months. Um, his name's Akira Santalin. And he is just ready to come back and, and start playing. But there's a lot of hype around his game. And, you know, that's, I think, what a country is, is hoping for, to have that next generation coming up.
3: Thank you so much. I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate the time that you've given, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And hopefully we'll talk to you again Hopefully we again get to do soon. it again. I hope so. I, I know. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Now, Mark Woodford also joined ATP Tennis Radio regulars Richard Connolly and Miles McLaggen to chat with another former star from the Southern
4: Hemisphere. With me are Miles McLaggen, who you know plenty about, Andy Murray's former coach, and Chris Lewis, too, the 1983 Wimbledon men's singles runner-up. Chris, it's great to have you with us on ATP Tennis Radio. How are you? Very well, thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. You've been on one of the grandest stages of them all. Uh... Coming from New
5: Zealand and growing up with Wimbledon as a dream, I would have to say that 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 stage is unequaled. Yeah, it's it's an incredible, incredible event. And uh, just being in London certainly brings back fond memories of my time here.
4: Yeah, I remember you with the bandana. That's right. Does everybody mention the bandana?
5: Everybody does. I think I was one of the first players, if not the first, to wear the bandana, so people do bring it up. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the latest in the shame.
4: Um, does, does it come back to you every time you're in this city?
5: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just walking around the streets and absolutely. Yeah, I was first here in 1974. So the first thing I did when I stepped off the airplane was actually go out to Wimbledon and visit the place because I grown up dreaming about it, playing imaginary Wimbledon finals in my backyard in New Zealand. So it is a very special place.
4: What do you remember about the final day itself?
5: That it's surreal. You're in there in the in the room prior to going out onto the centre court and everything, it's almost as if you're observing yourself because this is the realisation of a, a dream that you've held since you were a seven or eight year old boy and now that dream's being actualized, and you are the protagonist or you are the main actor in that dream and it's real so you see it from an outside perspective but you're right in the center of it as well it's just extraordinary. Sounds like a lot to cope with. John Newcomb actually I I was having dinner with John a couple of weeks after it he said the Wimbledon Centre Court is a place where you get to know yourself and that is correct it's a lot more than just tennis. So what did you find out about yourself? Just that you certainly like big occasions that Things in life that you have to work hard for are worth working hard for. It is the realization of a long-held goal, and the the incredible satisfaction you get from realizing those long-term goals is actually what life is all about. I mean, that you've got you've got a career that's gone on for years, and here it is. Every step that you've taken along the way has brought you to this realization, and yet
4: that is what life is about. Miles McLagan is with us, nodding away, because you've taken Andy Murray into those situations, so what would you like to say, Chris, uh, yeah, about
6: that? I, I, yeah, I want to ask, because as I've told you guys, I mean, growing up in Zimbabwe, we, we got one tennis match a year on TV, and it was the Wimbledon final, so uh, that's why I was very excited to, to meet Chris, and, and and he's still in incredible shape now, you can tell, and your 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 physical you know, fitness was was. Mythical. You know what I'm going to ask now? There was a, a story about you basically just running a treadmill into the ground. Is that true? I mean, you worked incredibly hard on your fitness, didn't you?
5: Yeah, I think that uh, I held my own against anybody um, and, you know, the, the treadmill was a worthy competitor. But I'm very familiar with the treadmill. You're absolutely right.
6: <laughs> and what about the, the players now, like in, the, in their time over 30 years ago? What's the, w- what are the developments you see in the game from now, from, from then to now? Well I think the
5: technology obviously has changed considerably, uh, the players are physically more robust, I think the rallies in general are much shorter, uh, there's less point construction and there's more power involved but you know essentially mentally it demands the same attributes. You need to be incredibly mentally tough to get to top of what is together with golf, the top individual sport on the planet. So. Uh, That part of it hasn't changed if you take somebody like Connors or John McEnroe or Lendl and you look at their mental attributes and you compare them with the extraordinary mental uh, Force or power of the Federer's and the Nadal's I think you find parallels there So in that respect, it's the same physically. It is different
6: And speaking of grace, we've just been joined by by Mark Woodford um, you must, the, the game in some ways, some of the, the critique has got a little one-dimensional. With your game, are you sometimes itching to think, well, this is how I get in and play, you know, play against this, play, you know, chip it around, your serve and volley? Certainly, I think it was more multi-dimensional because I think the technology
5: imposed that on you. You couldn't hit the ball as hard. Um, I'd be interested to hear Mark's views on that because as a is it one of the best, doubles players in tennis history looking at doubles today it's considerably different from the way mark played and the success he had i'd actually love to hear mark's perspective on that very question
2: well it's, it's different i mean the game has just evolved and we were doing a match earlier today talking about the big pressure points where probably from my time your time Miles' time as well, you might have thrown in a, a three-quarter kick serve and quickly close the net down and, and play from there. These days, it's they just roll the dice and just thunder down a big first serve, hoping to um, win with that one, one serve. And uh, the, maybe the returning team just try and rip the return. Um, doesn't, doesn't seem to be a whole lot of thought process into it uh, somehow.
5: Well, I, you know, that's your. Yeah, yeah I, I have to agree. As I said, it was more multidimensional, both on the, the singles court, yeah. the finesse and the, the point construction. Um, but it wins, so you can't argue against it.
4: Chris, forgive me, we are kind of introducing you, I think, to some degree, to a, a new generation of tennis fans as well who may know about your singles record. But how much doubles did you play? What was your success like? I played extensively on the, in doubles, as
5: everybody did in my era. All the top singles players, McEnroe and Landall and and pretty much played in doubles as well. Unlike today, where you've got more of a, a double specialist approach.
4: Uh, so the generations are very different. Do you think it, it's it's possible still for the top singles guys and, and would be beneficial for them to get out there and, and play the both? We were having a little bit of this conversation with Mark earlier. I don't want to take the, put the words in your mouth, but no. you feel it's it's possible, don't you? Yes. And it would be advisable for some of the, the leading singles guys to get out there and do both? Well, I think it's obviously possible. They could do it, but they choose not to because
5: people act in their self-interest. They don't play doubles because they think it's in their self-interest not to, Uh, but would it be possible? Absolutely. I've got to say from a developmental perspective, I would strongly recommend that young players participate in doubles as much as they can because it develops aspects of your game that singles doesn't lend itself to. So from a developmental perspective, I think you're going to end up a much better player, both singles and doubles, if you immerse yourself in doubles play from the time you can pick up a tennis racket. Yeah. Well,
2: Louis was also coached by probably one of the greatest uh, tennis coaches worldwide, Tony Roach, and uh, um, you know, spent many years. How, how long did you work yeah, with Yeah, three Roach? or four
5: years, and I have to say, I have to expand on that. Had it not been for Tony's influence, I never would have made a Wimbledon final. He is just extraordinary. He's exceptional. What did he What did he bring to you? Well, having been there himself, he was the number two player in the world and competed against Rod Laver, obviously an iconic figure in the game. What he brought was experience that you just can't buy. So anything that he said came from a background of tennis at the very, very top, coming from very humble beginnings. So he knew the game inside and out and everything he said. Uh, you certainly took note of, and it 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 actually formed. It was it was formative in my in my career, and certainly off the court, the example that he set has uh, definitely had a big impact on my life as well. Extraordinary. How, how do you mean? Well, just the way he conducted his life. I think you see a lot of players that on the court they're fantastic, but off the court, um, the way they conduct themselves leaves a little to be desired.
2: Tony is exemplary in both respects. That's how I mean it. 100 percent agree with what chris just said i mean that's why tony roach is still involved with australian tennis he's, he's very much a part of the davis cup um team set up right now leighton hewitt um all of us mark Philippoussis, pat rafter todd and myself um hopefully i'm not you know not mentioning anyone else's names there but that, you know we had such a great time working under nuke and roachie but the way Rochi conducted himself on the court Um, It's not like he forced you into, you know, that uh, professionalism. But he just exuded it himself. I mean, he he really, by by, you know, his own etiquette was uh, you just wanted to follow in those footsteps. And off the court, um, you know, great great family man and uh, wonderful wonderful wife and kids. And um, you know, he he you. You were drawn to, to Roche's, to his personality.
5: I couldn't agree with more with the sentiment Mark just expressed. I mean, he is a true leader insofar as he led by example. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, exactly Mark captured that very well.
4: Do you recall what he said to you before that Wimbledon final, given that that chunk of the conversation we had earlier about how you were almost seeing yourself from above? It was such a
5: huge experience. Well, well, certainly, I mean, McEnroe was the opponent. The strategic advice was to try and get it low to John to make him volley up. But with John's serve, I wasn't able to to follow the uh, advice, the strategic advice. John was just too good. But that specifically was the theme of the strategic approach that he wanted me to take.
4: About the occasion, do you remember what he said?
5: I'd already played on the center court, so I'd experienced it, and we'd spoken about that previously. But what Tony also was very aware of is he didn't want to make what was a momentous occasion even more momentous. So he would be doing everything he could to take the pressure off. I mean, there were hundreds of millions of people watching that match, and the last thing you want is to be, you know, speaking about that uh, <laughs> prior to walking on. So he was a master at actually minimising pressure, and you know, he would make as Harry Hopman was. With him, I also had a major involvement. So he came from the, the Hobman School as well. But it's it difficult to try and tell somebody it's just another match. That's true, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, that's true. But at the same time, he'd been there himself in a Wimbledon final, he'd played Grand Slam finals. So all the conversation, you're having it with someone who'd been there. So it, it, familiarity is a good thing. So you, you almost felt as though, you know, you, you, the way he expressed it was you'd already been there and, and you would have just a, a conversational approach to it. Yeah.
4: Sounds like you trusted every word he said implicitly and that must be a lovely place to be in.
5: Not implicitly, explicitly as well. I mean, yeah, Yeah. he was, yeah, everything that he said was spot on. You were the fool if you didn't, you know, absolutely follow it. Yeah.
0: That was Chris Lewis, Gentleman's runner-up at Wimbledon. And our thanks also to Richard Connolly, Mark Woodford and Miles McClagan. Finally, Chris Bowers went to meet another familiar voice to ATP Tennis Radio to focus on the doubles game.
2: The standard of doubles is getting higher and higher and, as established teams rediscover
0: form and new pairs break onto the scene, there's a constant shake-up at the top. Colin Fleming, the retired British doubles specialist, takes us through the teams to watch in the ATP's doubles race to London, starting with Team Lopez, Feliciano and Mark. Feli
7: Lopez is a huge lefty serve and we, we know from his career in singles and doubles. And Mark Lopez, I just love watching the guy play. He's got a big forehand, a lot of spin on it. And the way he's able to apply what he's got to unlock opponents is really great to watch. Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez. Great to see them up there in the race. But they're obviously two very good players and they've had a few near misses. Let's not forget doubles comes down to such fine margins. I'm sure they'll figure a few things out and push on now for the rest of the year and move towards the World Tour Finals.
0: Lucas Kubot and Marcelo
7: Mello. What a year they had last year. Really dominant number one team on the tour. Lucas Kubot, he takes big cuts at the ball, especially on returns. If he's not quite feeling it, maybe that goes off, or maybe that the energy in the team isn't quite where it was last year. But they seem to be working hard, and like I say, getting closer and closer to getting back to that high level they were playing.
4: Pierre-Huguerre and Nicolas
7: Maud. They're a top team. They'll be very dangerous if, they, if they're on their game. When they get hot, good things happen, and the French Open was proof of that. So emotional for them to win at home. Great scenes with Mahu's son running on the court, and that's something they'll never forget. And they'll push on now to be the teams to beat at Wimbledon. Nicolas Mektic
2: and Alexander Peya.
7: A relatively new team, Mek- And Two great guys, and Mektic's a bit younger and and bursting onto the scene. But it's great to see Alex uh, having a real resurgence. Really, really good partnership with Bruno Suarez. Great to see him doing well again, and they're an exciting team. They've got a lot of energy about them. To win a master Series, you've got to be a really, really good team playing top tennis, so they'll go on to have a strong year.
0: Juan Sebastian Cabal and Robert Farah.
7: Really happy for those guys, you know, I know them really well, and they've stuck together. They've had a, quite a few near misses, but this feels like it's going to be their year where they take that step. They're sitting at three in the race, you know, really strong position. I love it when teams stay together through the hard times and try and figure things out and, and push on for more success. Bob and Mike Bryan. The Bryans, it's incredible in tennis. Great to see them competing for that number one spot. How much would they love to get that back? They could go on and who knows, clinch that one number one year-end spot again. That would just be an incredible achievement.
0: Oliver Marach and Mate Pavic.
7: They're sitting at number one in the race. What a start to the year they had. Undefeated to the end of the Aussie Open titles in January, Uh, you know, not many teams have done that. Pavic a very big server, very good at the net now with his his positioning, that's developed over the last couple of years and and effective. And then Oli Marak, he's so experienced, huge forehand from the back of the court, which he utilises sometimes to stay back. That brings a lot of variety to the play. And then very effective up at the net, gets close to the net, little short volleys and, uh, you know, that's why they're, they're sitting number one, they've got huge assets.
0: Peter McCardo still with me. Nice piece with Chris and Colin. They're looking at current top eight doubles teams. Outside courts on week two, they're packed full of doubles action, and they were packed full today. The juniors have come into it. Doubles, mixed doubles—you only see mix at grand slams. It's such a great opportunity if you've got a ground pass, or maybe you've been in one of the show courts to come out and just get up close to doubles and how they play.
1: Absolutely, and the the courts are here to be able to do that because there's very limited seating, so you're getting your right on top of the action doubles, mixed doubles around and the juniors too, to see the juniors who are coming through, the junior boys, the junior girls it's such a wonderful atmosphere, the wheelchair events get underway, so we're seeing at the slams that it's more than just the the singles events and the doubles starts to really crank up and we know best of five sets here at uh, Wimbledon, it's the anomaly on the tour and the majors, so it always throws up some interesting results
0: Predictions for, let's say prediction for week two, who's going to be Lifting this trophy,
1: I ah, still like Roger. I still think Roger's going to. He hasn't given me a reason not to over the past week. And yeah, we'll get tougher the matches, but this is what he prepares for. I mean, the, the, all of the skipping of the clay court season comes into this. Preparation was good again. I mean, he's just ticking all the boxes, so it's very hard to pick against him. You'd like to see Del Potro go deep again, Nadal as well. Whichever way you look at it, there's going to be some interesting storylines along the way over the next seven or so days.
0: I'm going to say Novak Djokovic to win the title because as part of our time capsule that we put together in Melbourne, you and I, you had the time capsule. We put everybody's answers into a raft of questions. One of them was, who will win the Grand Slams? I picked Novak Djokovic. was not feeling confident a while back. I'm feeling a little bit you more confident. Well, I... D- <laughs> I'm going to stick. Whenever, I think the fires are burning. Good. So I will stick with Novak Djokovic. I want to wish you the best of luck in your media tennis tournament.
1: Uh, thank you, yes. I've got you nearly forgot out. what it was, and you were thinking, what is she talking I about? I wanted to best in your media, and you sort of stopped. It's like, okay, thanks. It's like just in general, but that's okay.
0: And what's Nick Kyrgios doing? We'll on serve, 4-3. Three three coming up to 9 o'clock in the evening.
1: Yeah, 4-3 on serve, Nishikori in the third set. He's two sets up, so anything could happen. But obviously, the ATP website will have all of that information. You enjoy your day off too, Gigi. You've been working hard, radio and TV. Double duty for you here.
0: Thank you. Yes. Now, I'm not sure with, with twin boys who are three, it, it's, <laughs> it it's, won't be a day it's, off. It's going to be lovely, but is it going to be relaxing? It'll probably be more relaxing when I come back to Manic Monday here, yes. when all around of 16 matches played and we are all over the place. But, Peter, I know I really appreciate your time. I know you've still got work to do following the Kyrgios match, came straight up from the Edmund well, match. Well, I'll
1: tell you what, Gigi. I'll skip the US Open so I can be ready for the end of the year on ATP Tennis Radio and we'll catch up then.
0: Yeah, Peter's going to be back for a big chunk of our final tournaments. You're going to see us through to the end of the tennis season.
1: I look forward to it.
0: Pete, it's been an absolute pleasure. Don't forget ATP Tennis Radio. We are a 24-7 channel. This is the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, one of those each week. But ATP Tennis Radio, just tune in. If there's not a tournament, a Masters or a 500 final taking place, then you can listen to features. There are some really great interviews on there. As Pete said, for results, go to atpworldtour.com. And as I mentioned a while earlier, on our Twitter feed, at ATP Tennis Radio, we're also playing out now exclusive archived interviews. We've spoken to some fantastic people since we've been ATP Tennis Radio which is just over a year now. We're going to be playing some of those interviews out. You can get daily news reports from Chris Bowers throughout the week available on the channel and you can also make them part of your daily news briefing on the Amazon Echo. And if you like what you've listened to then please feel free to review us from where you download your podcast. This has been... The ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It will be again in a week's time. Shiji Salmon of Peter Maccato. Thank you very much for your time.